everybody. Thanks for coming again. Um, I'm Madeline Weil from the city's Office of Policy and Communications. And we're very privileged today to have Dr. Dana Christensen from Oak Ridge National Lab um, uh, talking, uh, leading the group discussion today. Um, Dr. Christensen is the Associate Lab Director for Energy and Engineering Sciences. And I'm hoping that he'll tell us a little bit more about what his group is engaged in. But as a, as a brief overview, um, they're working to diversify energy production methods, increase um, energy efficiency, and improve energy transmission. So it's not an exaggeration to say that this is truly some of the world's most important work, I believe. And a lot of the world's most important work really is going on uh, just up the street from us at Oak Ridge. Um, so while they're doing that, Dr. Christensen and the rest of his group uh, has, have also been very generous with their time and um, being uh, outstanding partners to the City of Knoxville's Energy and Sustainability Initiative. Dr. Christensen is a member of the task force and folks on his staff have been, um, have been extremely important in getting our Solar America Cities Initiative up off the ground and helping us figure out how to improve the energy efficiency of our city buildings. So it's, it's, again, not an exaggeration to say that we couldn't be doing the things in Knoxville um, that, that we're doing to improve our energy efficiency without the participation of um, Dr. Christensen and his, his staff at ORNL. So with that, um, Dana, please come up and kick us off. Thanks. So I wasn't going to talk a lot about what we do at the laboratory, but since you asked, I'll just briefly say a few things. We do uh, uh, three or four hundred million dollars worth of work in applied energy technologies every year at the laboratory. We really do work in essentially every energy production, distribution, and use area for energy. So we have uh, scientists working in coal, in, in, uh, in, in liquid fuels, in nuclear power, in fusion power, in the grid and, and pipeline. Uh, sustainability and in the use and we do an awful lot of work partnering with TVA and local builders in uh, energy efficiency in homes. Uh, we are right now partnering with two uh, builders and building seven homes that have different energy efficient features in them uh, and they'll be used as test beds to be able to test out what those technologies do. Uh, you're welcome to go on our website and uh, see the variety of things that we do at the laboratory and if you have questions I'd be happy to have you send emails into us or contact the various people who are noted on the web page for information. Um, so this is, uh, it's been a long time since I've done a book report. Uh, uh, and Madeline called some time ago and said, would you be willing to do this review of, of this book? And I, I cavalierly said, sure, I'll be happy to do this. And uh, I'm hoping that everyone has read the book. If you haven't, uh, we're, I'm not going to review the book itself. I'm going to talk about issues, and I'd really like at some point to engage in conversation in the room about how all of you feel about issues around surrounding fossil fuels and our uh, economy and the leverage that fossil fuels have against our economy. First, I thought I'd uh, give you a real short bio on Michael Bruhn, and I, didn't, I don't know him personally. I went online and, and found as much information as I could, and I've got a little summary here of of some of his history and why he was a, a suitable author for this topic here. He joined the old growth team at the Rainforest Action Network in 1998, uh, and he, was, he came there to work on what at that time was called the Home Depot Campaign. Uh, and let me read, I've got a quote out of a Time Magazine article in 1998 that I think really frames what that campaign was all about. So here it is. 
uh, quote, most American consumers know better than to buy ivory or buy ashtrays made from gorilla paws or tuna caught in nets that are not dolphin free. But when they stop by the Kinkos for stationery or Home Depot for plywood, will they ask themselves, is this old growth free? This week, 70 cities from Anchorage, Alaska to Athens, Georgia, environmentalists plan to stage a day of action by picketing Home Depot, the mammoth building supply chain. Customers will be offered rainforest tours through the store, uh, spotlighting products made with trees from pristine old growth forests around the world, dowels and tool handles from ramen wood from Southeast Asia, doors of Amazon mahogany, cedar shingles and Douglas fir lumber from temperate rainforests in North America, Luan plywood from the Philippines and Indonesia. The protest uh, are the opening salvo in what promises to be a hardball campaign to force Atlanta-based chains to stop selling products made from old growth wood. Persuading Home Depot will provide critical mass for a campaign that has been building momentum for more than a year. So it sounds, when you read that article, like we have got a real uh, negative action group, anti-anti, we're going to do something. And it turns out it's not quite that way. Let me show you what happened with, with Home Depot. There's a hammer, and it's made with a hardwood handle. This one happens to be hickory. It's U.S. grown hickory. It's recoverable, re renewable hickory. But you, you could at one time buy really nice tools that had wood handles in them, hardwood handles with very fine grain, and most of that wood came from old growth forests because you could get the really strong, fine grain from those type of trees. Now, Home Depot was confronted with, they're, of course, a retailer. They bring in uh, products from wholesalers and repackage, and, and they're a big box retailer. Uh, and so they were faced with, what do I do? And they have this challenge. Well, solving that challenge was pretty easy because they could immediately shift to a different tool supplier that could sell hammers with, uh, this one happens to be a fiberglass handle with a rubber grip on it. Or they could even shift to other alternatives like all steel hammers with handles. And virtually all the tools that you could buy that had old forest uh, wood products on them could be replaced with suitable alternatives. Plywood that was being built uh, with old forest wood could be supplied with alternatives. So there were a variety of alternatives on the market. Um, it turns out uh, that uh, in the 1998 time period, um, the words or the phrases, old growth free and endangered forest free, were not very common phrases. I certainly wasn't resonating with that. So it was a brand new concept that was uh, entering the scene. Now, one year after the campaign started, I'm going to read you a quote from Time Magazine that came out almost exactly one year later in 1999. Here it is. Uh, if the Home Depot campaign is an indication the Greens have a good strategy, reluctant to be called anti-business, they refer to market campaigns rather than consumer boycotts. To deter corporations from taking timber from untouched parts of British Columbia's Great Bear Forest, the world's largest vestige of coastal temperate rainforest, the Rainforest Action Network, along with the Sierra Club and other groups, used a stick and a carrot on the big consumers of lumber companies, the activists blasted Home Depot for buying Big Bear Wood, but when the supply chain stopped, they ran ads praising the decisions. Now, the reality was also Home Depot jumped on this and they made it an ad campaign. They became the first co company to be able to advertise that their products were old growth forest free. So they turned it into a positive. And honestly, it took them about a year to go and renegotiate all the contracts they had 
with the, comp with the suppliers, the wholesale suppliers. So there truly was a stick and a carrot that happened here. It was really a positive outcome that occurred. Now this story at the time in 1999 was heralded as the most environmental, number one environmentally conscious story out in the, uh, in the environment. Uh, as a result of the success of that, Michael was promoted to the campaign director that led the Rainforest Action Networks to confront Kinko's and Boise Cascade about their forest harvest, harvesting practices. It caused them to also change their practices and they stopped buying old forest products. This led him to then become aware of the indigenous communities in South America and in Southeast Asia. He talked about those uh, communities in the book and I thought it was quite a compelling discussion in the book. Uh, he also led the Great Bear Rainforest uh, action uh, against British Columbia where harvesting practices have now changed and those were cited in the 1999 magazine article that I just noted. He ran the action network from uh, he came to the Action Network from the Coastal Rainforest Coalition, and he was the public outreach director for Greenpeace in San Francisco. He has a BS in accounting and finance from Westchester University. And I think it's very easy to describe him as an experienced and successful political activist. That's what he's chosen as his career path, and that's what he's doing, and he's being successful at it. So his current campaign, I think it's well spelled out in the book, Coming Clean, uh, breaking America's addiction to oil and coal. So if you've read the book, I think you can very quickly understand what the campaign is all about. It's to challenge our country's uh, uh, dependence on fossil fuels, and it's both our, our uh, transportation dependence as well as our electricity dependence. In the book, he really tries to frame the impacts of fossil fuels having on our environment, on our national security, on our public and our international reputation, on industrial costs, on health, he really tries to touch all of those key social issues. I personally think that he tried to touch too many issues. He really hit so many items and didn't get deep enough into a number of them. And I, so I think there is a little bit of a weakness that he could have gone a little bit deeper in some of that. But he did touch all of the hot buttons out there where fossil fuels and emissions are having an impact. I feel that in reading the, the book, though, and in trying to review it with you, it's really important to first kind of test the premise of the book. Now, I personally think that it's a kind of an obvious thing that burning fossil fuels is causing changes in our environment. But let me just quickly go over uh, where I think uh, we can find uh, uh, scientific evidence to defend that change. So coal and oil have underpinned our economy and the economies of the world since the Industrial Revolution really took off. Prior to that, the world was essentially an agrarian uh, world, and in 1850 then, we discovered, 1850s, we discovered oil, coal came on the scene, we generated uh, steam and made steam uh, power plants and that, and so that's when the Industrial Revolution really, really took off. Uh, I went back and pulled up a textbook by Meyer Steinberg called Greenhouse Gas uh, Carbon Dioxide Mitigation, and this is a textbook, so it's a scholarly written text. It's not, the, it's not this type of a book that's a political action book. Uh, and, I, and so I went and read some about, well, just how can we frame this in a way that people would understand? So, in here, Meyer talks about the physics, atmospheric physics. And he talks to the fact that the sun, which is really the source of all our energy, is burning at about 6,000 degrees Kelvin, about 10 to 11,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's really hot temperature. It's hard for me to really envision that temperature. Now, Light energy is coming off the sun at somewhere between 0.4 and 0.7 micron wavelengths. And it's incident on the Earth, 
And when you're sitting on the sun looking out and you can see the earth out there, it's a little tiny spot on the horizon. It's really difficult to see. So very little light energy that's coming off the sun actually is incident on the earth. It's a small amount. If it was more than that, we would probably not be living here. The earth wouldn't be what it is today. Now, the earth itself takes in that energy and it is sitting and rotating and it's growing plants and there are activities on the earth and it's emitting energy back out in the form of thermal energy. That energy is coming off the earth at between four and 100 micron wavelength light. So it's coming in at 0.4 to 0.7, it's leaving the earth at four to 100 microns. And the earth is radiating at a, on average about 59 degrees Fahrenheit. So, it's, so that sun's coming in at about 10,000 degrees and the earth is emitting back out at about, about 59 degrees. Now it just turns out that moisture in our atmosphere, so humidity in that, will attenuate, will absorb energy coming off the earth at somewhere between four and seven microns. So it's at the very low end of that emission spectrum. Luckily, we don't have a lot of energy leaving the earth at that end, or we would actually have a, a worse problem with greenhouse gases. Now, CO2 is a different story. Carbon dioxide, of course, is the product of the combustion of fossil fuels. It, it attenuates that energy between about 12 and 20 microns wavelength. So it's right in the sweet spot for the energy that's being emitted off the earth. That means that it, it absorbs that energy, it gets excited, it's unstable, it can't stay that excited, and all of a sudden it releases its energy and it goes off in all directions. And of course, a portion of that energy gets aimed back at the earth and comes back and voila, you have the greenhouse effect. You have this, this, this what is being referred to as a blanket of gas that's accumulating in the atmosphere and it's beginning to trap and hold that temperature down or hold that energy down. The natural result is the, the uh, temperature of the Earth has to increase a little bit because a little bit more energy is being reflected back at it. And then, of course, the, the temperature of the Earth is going to slightly go up and it'll begin emitting at a higher temperature. And so that's what we're seeing, this thing that's called global warming. And indeed, that's what's happening in the atmosphere. So as CO2 concentrations go up, the temperature of the Earth has to go up. That's just the physics of the atmosphere. So what's the real effect? So pre-industrial concentrations of CO2, we know were around 280 parts per million of, uh, in, in the air. Uh, we know that today the concentrations in the atmosphere are closer to about 400 parts per million. And they're climbing. And they've been climbing ever since the Industrial Revolution started. And we know that because we were going back and pulling ice core samples from Antarctica. And we can see almost exactly when the change in CO2 concentrations began. It was almost simultaneous with the beginning of the Industrial Age. And so the temperature's going up almost, it's, it's almost tracking exactly the increase in the concentration of CO2. So it's really unequivocal. Today we can look back and we can see the burning of fossil fuels and the emission of more CO2 in the atmosphere is resulting in a slow increase in temperature of the atmosphere. So I think we can say with, with high confidence that the, the human uh, presence here on the Earth is resulting in uh, increase in temperatures and climate change. So given this, the next question that I have is, what can we do about it? And, uh, and is, is Michael Bruhn's roadmap that he outlines in the book something that can be achievable? So I'm going to hand out a document here, which is generated by some colleagues at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. It's a set. There's two charts, one on each side of the, of the, docu of the paper. And it shows 
it shows the source of energy, the real colorful side, shows the source of energy, the source of fuels that we use to generate energy in this country. The flip side shows the carbon emissions. So it kind of gives you the whole story here on one piece of paper. So um, let's start first with oil. Oil is obviously the largest uh, category of fossil fuels and the chart shows that we are consuming about 39.57, so let's call it 40, about 40 quads, and, and uh, fortuitously that's about 40%, so each one of these numbers can be viewed as a percent. About 40% of the energy we consume in this country is oil, and you can see how much of that goes into transportation, the vast majority of it. And so we are really dependent, heavily dependent on oil for all of our transportation activities. Now, Brun addresses this issue in his whole chapter on redesigning mobility. The recommendation he has is to adopt more rapid transit in the form of trains and buses and pedal power and subways and walking, uh, all variety of technologies that don't need to have oil. Uh, and he's, you see these recommendations in this section called stepping out of the car. And my question is, is this achievable? Now, he doesn't say that we have to abandon the car. I don't want to, he's not so strict in saying we've got to stop using the car altogether. He does admit that it's going to be a very difficult transition to move away from the automobile as we know it today into new transportation sectors. Um, so, uh, to answer the question, can, is it achievable, I want to look back at what our country did coming out of World War II we put out probably the most impactful incentive program, stimulus program, into the U.S. economy coming out of World War II by encouraging those uh, war fighters who came home to live the American dream, to go out and buy your own home. Home ownership was really important. We encouraged people to leave the central cities, to leave the high-rise uh, accommodations, move out into the suburbs, and we established that term called suburbs. Uh, people, when they, when they moved to the suburbs now, they, they own their own lawns. They had to own a car to drive from their home into work. They had to buy lawnmowers. They had to put in sprinkler systems. They had to build garages. I mean, this stimulated, look at the industry that this stimulated in the country. It stimulated life as we know it today in this country. Um, that, now, the stimulus that the government gave was they allowed us to deduct the mortgage interest in, in all of our mortgages. And so people could find that instead of paying rent, they could pay a mortgage, they could deduct their interest, and it was a pretty easy trade-off between buying your home and owning it, gaining uh, an asset as opposed to renting. And so people literally moved out, and they moved away from these opportunities to use the public transport because we're out there in the suburbs and people are going in all different directions to find their place of work. So we really have put in place a stimulus, which was an unprecedented stimulus to the economy coming out of World War II. And now we're asking ourselves, can we actually reverse that stimulus and do it in a different way that will allow people to come more back to mass transport mechanisms and indeed begin to get away from the use of the individual automobile? It's gonna be very difficult. Uh, there's another facet to this as well, and that is, can automobiles, can we maintain this lifestyle that we've got and move to a different type of automotive platform? And that means working with the automobile makers as well as the infrastructure providers, and that's for the most part the federal government. 
Today, automakers are moving very rapidly to introduce a whole suite of new technologies and a whole suite of new vehicles out there that actually will reduce the demand on oil. So Toyota, for instance, is really betting the company on the hybrid vehicle, the gasoline or the biofuel electric hybrid vehicle. And they will be coming out with a plug-in uh, electric uh, hybrid here next year, very likely, be commercially available. Certainly be commercially available by 2011. Nissan is on the verge of introducing their all-electric vehicle, and it will be out by about December next year. So we're about 18 months from seeing it available commercially on the showroom floors. VW is introducing their new diesel vehicle, and they're looking at a diesel hybrid vehicle now. So it would be both biodiesel as well as traditional petroleum diesel tied together with uh, electric hybrid technology. Of course, we know that Ford and GM are also introducing their electric and hybrid vehicles. They're, they're clearly behind these other innovators that are in the marketplace. And I would suggest that the whole landscape for automotive technology is changing pretty rapidly. All of you hear or see on TV, maybe you even have in your own vehicle, uh, pop-up GIS systems that help you get from point A to point B. You can type it in and it'll tell you where to turn. Uh, you see backup signals, backup alarms that tell you if there's something behind you. Uh, you see, I, I was just at the ITS America show last week. I saw cars that have radar on the car that will look at the, the lane stripes and will tell a driver that they're drifting out of the lane prematurely if they don't have their turn signal on and will actually help steer the car back in the lane to help avoid lane drift accidents. So that technology is all electronic, it's all electric technology, it's sensor driven and it's beginning to penetrate the automotive sector. We're gonna see much more of that. All these vehicles will dramatically reduce the demand for, demand for oil and transportation, but there's one big challenge that we're gonna to have to face with all of this. Actually, there's two big challenges. One of them is energy storage on board. The battery technology that's available today will not provide the type of range of driving that all of us are used to in our own automobiles. I'm personally used to having a car that I can drive for almost two weeks back and forth commuting to work before I have to stop and fill up with gasoline. Uh, I could drive a, a uh, 50 or 60 mile range battery and be able to do that just fine. But if I wanted to also take that car out to the movies or out to dinner, all of a sudden I'm stretching the range of available battery technology today. A tremendous amount of work needs to be done in battery technology if we're going to see these type of vehicles successfully penetrate the market long term. The second big thing that's going to have to happen is the infrastructure itself. Uh, when you begin to move away from gasoline, we're all used to pulling up to the corner gas station and filling up on a moment's notice when we need to refuel. If we're plugging into the wall, it's not clear where we're gonna be able to plug in. And it's also not clear how fast we're gonna be able to recharge those batteries. Uh, there, Nissan is looking at a 26 minute recharge rate on their 100 mile range battery. That means you could drive, getting close to 100 miles, you're gonna to have to find a place to pull over. And then you're gonna to have to wait 26 minutes to fast recharge that battery. Uh, it's not been tested out in the marketplace and I'm doubtful we're gonna quite get to that type of recharge rate. The batteries simply aren't gonna be able to tolerate it. But that's their target, that's what they're looking for. I think we need to see both a, a big change in our infrastructure to be able to accommodate the move of this technology into the marketplace and we're gonna to have to see research done to improve the battery technology itself before we can really see vehicles of this type penetrate the marketplace. So, getting back to the book, you know, is it feasible for us to actually move away from oil? Uh, not, not real soon. We're gonna be dependent on oil for a long time. 
Uh, we're going to have to find ways of uh, saving, uh, carpooling more if we really intend to reduce the emissions. Uh, getting rid of the old clunker cars. I think all of us saw in the newspaper today the clunker car bill uh, has gotten through at least one of the houses uh, uh, in Congress. Uh, and that will allow us to get people reimbursed for their getting their old clunker off the road if they'll buy a much more fuel efficient vehicle. That's the type of behavior change that's going to have to happen for us to see an impact in the uh, oil sector here. And you can see the extent to which we are leveraged against oil in terms of transportation. I also doubt that we're going to see much move away from uh, liquid fuels for airplane travel. It's just too fungible a fuel, it's too efficient a fuel, and I can't imagine us taking off in an airplane with a battery. <laughs> just can't imagine we're going to get there. Okay, so that's oil. So now the most important issue surrounding coal is that coal represents a major storage mechanism. So where I said we need to have battery storage for automobiles, coal is the storage medium for electricity. And you can see here, coal is about 22.5% of our nation's energy. Most of that goes into electricity, almost all. There are small portions that don't go, that go into the industrial sector. Let's see, anyone have a water bottle with them here today? Madeline's, there's another water bottle. That water bottle is made with polyethylene terephthalate. That is made from coal. Almost 100% of that comes from coal. So there's a product out there that, that that's that line that goes across from coal into the industrial sector. Uh, so not everything uh, goes into combustion. Some of it goes that route. Now, we, whenever we walk into a room, we want to flip the switch on and have the light go on. It is at that moment that you flip the switch on that the demand for that electricity occurs. I mean, think about the utilities challenge here. They don't know when you're going to flip the switch on, and they're poised to generate that electricity, waiting to see for that demand to occur. And when you flip the switch on, we all expect that electricity to flow and that light to light up. Now, it's easy for one light switch for each one of us to be able to say, not my problem, I can turn my lights on. But think about the challenge that the utilities have when everyone in the morning gets up and they all flip on their lights at the same time. We all walk out into the kitchen and turn on the coffee pot all at the same time. We hop in the shower, kicks on the hot water heater all at the same time. So the utilities see this huge surge in demand first thing in the morning, and actually they have two surges, uh, two surges throughout the day. Their challenge is how do they supply that demand? Well, they have to have electricity in a, in a storage medium so that they can actually respond quickly and they can dial it down when the demand goes away. Otherwise, we're dumping electricity and wasting it. Now, the way they do that is they can shovel more coal into the firebox, heat up the, the steam generators, and, and turn the turbines and make more power. Now, nuclear power does the same thing. The energy there is stored in fuel rods, and we simply are going to pull control rods and heat up the, uh, heat up the steam generators and, uh, and, and turn turbines there. And so in nuclear power plants, that storage mechanism is in the fuel itself. Essentially the same thing as coal. It's in the fuel. It's a stored material. That's the biggest challenge we have with trying to get away from coal, is that we need to have that flexibility and fungibility to be able to, to respond to the demand when the demand occurs. And there are very few uh, technologies out there that allow us to do that. Um, let's see. Uh, 
Okay, another issue is that the utilities are generally publicly sold companies and they're designed to generate maximum profit for their stockholders. How many people here own stock in, say, Duke Power or Southern Company? Does anyone? My guess is almost every one of you do because it's in your retirement plans or in your, your mutual fund portfolios. I think it's a, it's a rare person that doesn't have a utility somewhere in one of their investment portfolios. Now, if we were to abandon all of those power plants, and there are about 600 uh, coal-fired power plants, all of a sudden, those companies have to change their whole, their whole profitability. So where you and I now have investment in those companies, we're gonna have to stop and think. Are we willing to sacrifice that profitability to go to a different mechanism for power production, which means a different, me different mechanism for their profit generation? So stopping the use of the coal power plants means abandoning these investments, and I think that's also gonna be a very difficult sell to the public in general. There has to be a different mechanism really established to move uh, these private investments over to other technologies so as to either minimize or eliminate the financial risk for all of the investors that are out there. And they're not, they're not the big boy investors, it's you and I. Every one of us are a partial investor in those technologies. I guess my point of this is this the challenge that we're facing, and we are all facing this challenge, is a much more difficult, much more complex challenge than facing this challenge. This was an easy fix because there were lots of alternatives. This is a very difficult fix because we don't have the type of alternatives and we're either going to have to change our lifestyles pretty dramatically or we're going to have to change our technology and make investments in technology. So let me uh, quickly summarize here. Uh, questioning the premise on the thesis of the book, coming clean. Uh, I think uh, to address all the atmospheric carbon issues, we're going to have to. We're going to have to do what's in here. There's really no alternative. Uh, to address the atmospheric carbon that's got to go, to address the economic competitiveness, we have to transition in a way that facilitates industry and doesn't threaten all those private investments. To address the American dream, uh, we need uh, new, new policies, new politics, we need new incentives. We can't tell people, oh, we are encouraging you to go buy homes out in the suburbs, and then all of a sudden we're going to penalize you for having done exactly what we incentivized you to go do. It's going to have to be a new set of incentives that come out. To address all the storage issues, we need to rationalize the need for a whole portfolio of technologies, and uh, I think it needs, it needs every one of those technologies that's on that sheet. We're not going to totally abandon coal. We're not going to totally abandon gas or oil. And we're going to have to see growth in areas like nuclear, where we have the ability to store energy. We're going to have to see growth in wind energy and, and solar energy. Uh, it's going to have to be a different portfolio, but it's going to include all of these same items. To address the transportation issues, we have to invest in the new automotive platforms, and we have to invest in battery technology big time. And most important, we need to be thinking about transformational technologies especially in the infrastructure. Imagine, for instance, in the infrastructure, if we can figure out how to charge the car, charge the battery in the car while we're rolling. It's, it's, that's not a pipe dream. It's possible to do that. Uh, but it's going to take a dramatic change in the infrastructure to be able to do that. The book, I think, does a good job of articulating the problems. I mean, we could all, if you read the book, you know that. But I don't think it really ad adequately addresses this mechanism of how to, over, how to solve the problem, how to overcome some of these barriers that are there. As I said, it's just really, it's so much more complex than the rainforest issues. Uh, I view it as really a good call to arms. 
Uh, I think it, it, you know, the other reviewers that I read, they said it was a good call to action. I don't think it's a call to action. I think it's a call to arms. We need to do something is what it says, and I agree with that. Uh, the issue is dramatically different than the Home Depot challenge. In the Home Depot case, the target was a small number of wholesale suppliers that supplied these products to a few retail stores, and they could target that connection between the, the wholesaler and the retailer. And by the way, Home Depot turned that into a positive because it became a marketing campaign on their behalf. Um, I think this, the target for this document is every single person makes it so much more difficult. Right thing to do, really challenging to do. We're all gonna to have to decide that we wanna move away from a carbon-based energy into something that's uh, less carbon intensive. It's gonna to have to be as much voluntary as it is uh, arm twisting. Probably more voluntary than arm twisting. So let me stop there and uh, I'd actually like to engage in conversation and I'd like not to have questions coming just at me but maybe to other people in the room too, so. So um, first, uh, I don't want anyone in the room to think that, that that category called unused energy is all recoverable. There are things like thermodynamics that drive you to certain levels of maximum efficiency in the conversion of a fuel into a useful product. We can greatly reduce that number, but it will never go to zero. You have entropy in the system and you're gonna end up with lost energy. Uh, so what are we doing in this area? I mentioned to you the building's technology work that we're doing. We've been working, for instance, with, uh, with Habitat for Humanity to demonstrate new technologies, and it's a nice uh, warm and fuzzy to say you're working with Habitat, but the reality is we're taking advantage of those homes as living laboratory platforms, and we're testing technologies out, and we're working with industries that are supplying those technologies, and then uh, they are taking those out back into the marketplace once they can get the approval. So a good example of that is General Electric will be taking their new heat pump water heater commercial later this summer. That was a cooperative research agreement that we worked with them on. They've licensed the technology and they're now gonna commercialize that technology. Um, we've worked, I worked with the Governor's Clean Energy Task Force this year uh, and in building efficiency is one area. Uh, and one of the most important things that I told the governor is we've gotta promulgate building codes and standards up to current standards. You read, I think, in yesterday's paper that that's, it is probably the most contentious item in the, in the legislature right now, but the governor's confidence that it's gonna be pushed through. The first time that we'll have a, a standard set of building codes across the state. Now that will allow us to go and inspect buildings that are being built today to make certain that they're being built to current standards, which includes correct insulation, the, the, you know, the, the correct uh, windows, you, know, you have double pane windows instead of single pane windows that you're doing the right ceiling of, of buildings and that. All the right electrical systems, the right mechanical systems, for the first time we'll be able to now do that once it's promulgated into law. I think that's a big home run that we finally hit this year in the buildings area. Now we have a lot of pushback because there are an awful lot of builders who they know how to build a home because they've been pounding nails their entire life but you know, the way we used to pound nails, we don't build homes that way anymore if we want them to be efficient. I mentioned that we're building seven homes now with two different builders uh, in Campbell Creek area and up in Oak Ridge. Uh, I've encouraged our people to move away from the habitat homes because they simply don't get the kind of exposure that, uh, that we need if we wanna have builders come in and look at new technologies and new techniques. We need to be showing that you can build a middle-class family home that's attractive, that's, that's on everyday street America, 
uh, that people are going to want to come and buy. And so we're doing that right now. And those homes will have very, very uh, accomplished HERS ratings, so energy efficiency ratings in them, probably well less than 50, which is 50% more efficient than, than a home built against current codes. We're using those homes as uh, builder uh, boot camp uh, opportunities. So we're actually inviting builders from the community to come out and look at the techniques and technologies that are being installed. Uh, we're working with all of those industries uh, hand in hand for all their appliances, all their windows, their insulation, their roofing materials, and uh, helping them to advance that technology so that we abandon the old technologies and equipment. We're moving into a brand new suite of technologies and equipment. And probably the last thing that's of importance here is we're working with the, the Walmarts and the Home Depots and the Lowe's of the world to get them to stock those items. So that's a social issue, you know, get those stocked. We're working with the city and trying to help encourage the communication campaign now so that people will begin using compact fluorescence, installing solar where it's a cost-effective, uh, in, in better insulation of homes. And of course, TVA is a wonderful partner uh, I can't tell you how valuable and important they are in helping to communicate and, and uh, do, we, we talked earlier about home energy audit program. Uh, they've been doing that for years and years and years. Uh, their frustration is they, they hand the homeowner a report that says if you'll just do these things you'll save money and the report goes into the garbage can, nothing ever happens. And we talked to the governor about that too and hopefully we'll end up with some of the stimulus money put into a, an actual investment program for the homeowner. There are many homes that never get inspected. They never get inspected. Uh, it's, a, it's a crime, really. I, you know, we should, I, you know, my, my argument to the governor was, pass the codes, now we have to use new technologies, we have to then have a smarter workforce to do that, that's going to bootstrap the workforce forward, we're going to buy new and modern equipment, that'll stimulate the economy, and you know what, that's going to bring new industry to the state. If we keep doing the same old thing, we're going to keep getting the same old products from the same old sources. Doesn't help the economy, doesn't help education, doesn't help anything. So, yes? How is it that the argument that the world really isn't getting warmer has so, such good press, continued good press from some areas? Yeah, I, I, look, I, politics, I don't know the answer to the question really. I think that we are past the point where someone's questioning whether greenhouse gases are resulting in a warming of the, of the environment. We're past that question now. I mean, I still hear Rush Limbaugh railing about you know, greenhouse gases aren't, aren't for real. Um, there are a lot of things I like about Rush, but that's one thing I don't like about Rush. I think he's got the wrong message. I think we're past that point uh, because we're now talking, I mean, listen to what the Obama administration is talking about with uh, renewable technologies and uh, um, just this uh, get, getting the clunkers off the highway. I mean, that's a message we want to get off of this oil pipeline. So I think we're, we're at the point now of saying, how do we start to address the problem and solve it? Yes? Um, I'm not sure I understand. If we're, if we're shifting um, to all electric cars, you know, making that shift, and most of the um, electricity is generated by coal, we're not really gaining a lot, are we? Boy. We're still having to generate um, electricity through fossil fuels. So what's, what's the justification for making that huge infrastructure change when you're not picking up that much? Does anyone else want to respond to that? I can respond to it, but I'd, I'd like to get a conversation going about that. So.
has a model and uh, not uh, likes. <laughs> <laughs> not likes. But um, it's a danger. This green bar on the bottom of this chart, it says 39.57, and I said let's just call it 40. Draw a line in the middle of that and put 25 and 15. That equals 40. 25 is imported. 15 is domestically produced. So there's an issue here of our economic security is dependent on the import of oil for the most part from countries that do not have the same economic interests as this country. So this is what Dave is saying. This is pretty fragile. You know, if someone decides they don't like us, they could just turn the spigot off for a little while. And our price is so volatile that it, it will do what just happened to us uh, six months ago here. So, yes? That's one area where I want to bring up. I disagree with you. Okay, good. We're still talking countries. If you look at the, the, the 100 largest entities in the world by, by dollar volume, only about half the countries, the other half are huge transnational corporations, the biggest of which is ExxonMobil. It just posted the largest profit in the history of mankind. And instead of plowing those resources, or being required by good public policy to plow those resources into safer, cleaner things, it is using that for record dividends, record executive compensation, record marketing campaigns to create uh, imaginary things like clean coal. Um, everything but the capital investment in the cleaner, safer fuels in the future. And there, I think, is where the problem is. So uh, I think, you know, I, don't dis I don't disagree with anything you just said. Um, think about uh, British Petroleum, because they're another large transnational corporation. They are honestly putting a lot of their investment back into wind, into biofuels. Now, it's not, it's not enough, and they still are making record profits. But they have now realized that they're not just in the petroleum business, they're in the energy business. And I think that's what's going to have to happen to these large corporations. Or they're going to follow the same pathway that GM followed by providing things that the, that the world didn't really want. So it's. If anybody knows that we're running out of these resources, like oil, it's definitely those companies. So why have they always been part of the fight to keep the switch from happening instead of preparing themselves? Like if I was running out of something I'm selling, I would like try to scheme up a new business, right? I, I, it's, it's a very complex, very complex uh, set of equations here that we're looking at. I, and I don't know how to answer your question. Um, Dave's comment about we're reaching perhaps a peak in oil inventories where we have, will have consumed half of the uh, oil around the world. You know, I've talked to the people who actually do that forecasting. Uh, their argument is the market's going to control that. When we begin to lose inventory, the price is going to go up and it will be a self-dampening uh, function. Uh, you know, the oil companies are worried about, the CEOs of the oil companies are worried about their profitability this year. I think that's an easy answer. But are they worried about their profitability 10 years from now? I don't know. I don't know. Because that oil is going to be worth so much more 10 years from now. See, I contend that that oil can be used, will be able to be used for much better things, more commodity use as opposed to just combusting. Well, and I think all of the big oil companies are in trouble in that they can 
find enough new reserves to match how much they're producing every year. So when oil prices get to be very high, uh, they make windfill profits, but they don't have any place to invest that right. money any place in the world where they can get oil. Very difficult. It's going to be very difficult. Give me your insight into how the proposed uh, carbon credits and cap and trade play into this, and, and what's your sense of how that system could be kind of gained and, and, and undermined? Well, I'm suspicious that it could be easily gamed, and I, you know, I haven't looked that closely at the, what the provisions are. But when someone says you're going to be given so many, so many tons of carbon. And if you can be more efficient, we're going to allow you to sell your carbon. I'm thinking, boy, this is a big roulette game that's going to happen here. And so I, I, I'm suspicious about it personally. The, the, you know, the fact of the matter goes back to what we did as this massive stimulus coming out of World War II when we encouraged people to actually move out into the, into the suburbs. The, the cap and trade bill, the Markey Waxman bill, you know, I'm wondering how, how are they going to deal with this stimulus that told us to go out there and now they're going to tell us, oh, we're not going to tax you because you moved out there. Because in effect, that's what's going to happen. Okay. So, so you, I mean, this is this tug and pull that I, it's, um, I'm not happy with the idea of a cap and trade bill. I'm not happy with taxes on carbon. I would be much happier to see us move to electrified transportation where we didn't need to use oil. I'd like to see investment going into that. Uh, I frankly would prefer seeing a different, different portfolio of electricity production. I don't personally see uh, the problem that everyone has with, that not everyone, that many people have with nuclear power. Uh, I mean, look, we just in the most recent nuclear news that came out, the headline, the, the cover was the online efficiency for nuclear power plants on average across the entire country has exceeded 90%. I mean, that's just incredibly efficient, the way those power plants are running. No accidents, no emissions, 90% online operating performance. Uh, now, we haven't found a major incident around the world in nuclear since the Three Mile On and the, and the Chernobyl event. And those two events stimulated a huge change in the way we maintain, operate, and, uh, and design those plants. Uh, so that's one. That's a way, just, that's one mechanism I see to be able to achieve that storage so that we can have responsive electricity, and, and, uh, and that, but not have carbon emissions. Now, we still need to have a massive investment in renewable energy, like wind and solar. Uh, and we're doing a great job, I think, here in, in, East, in Tennessee in general, but in East Tennessee in particular, branding this area as a solar area for the, for the country. And we'll see more. There's more coming that uh, if, if we win a couple of projects that uh, Madeline and I worked on, uh, this uh, last spring uh, come through. We'll know that this summer. There's going to be another big investment that comes into the state. Uh, now, the other most important thing we can do is energy efficiency. Uh, being a better steward of this, you know, reducing this loss column up here, is probably the most efficient thing that we can do in terms of saving carbon in the atmosphere. So getting, our, getting rid of all of the incandescent light bulbs that we can and getting into compact fluorescence or, or LED lighting uh, changing out insulation in houses, uh, uh, turning off lights, turning off your, your electronics. I mean, if you walk into your house right now, my guess is that you've got so much tramp electricity being burned that you, don't, you have no idea. 
all the little LED lights on your, on your stove and on your microwave and on your stereo and just go out, turn off everything that you would normally turn off and go out and look at your electric meter. Okay, it's just spinning and spinning and spinning because of all the tramp sources of power drain in the house from all these little, little gizmos, your, your clock radio and uh, it's a huge amount of, uh, of power drain. We got to get away from that. We have to change the way we behave in that, so. Clear power, it also has a spec fuel that we have to contain in some way. They found better ways to contain it. I remember it in the early 90s when we were talking about putting glass. Um, there was a defense waste program so we had reactors running at Savannah River and at Hanford in, in Washington State, Savannah River down in, in, uh, in South Carolina. Uh, and those, we were reprocessing fuel from reactors to get the plutonium out that went into the nuclear weapons program. There were other products that came out too, but that was the major reason. That waste has been put for the most part in glass. Certainly, essentially all of it at Savannah River has now been put in glass. So the technology's been proven out that you can actually put it in glass. It's been put in containers, and it's now waiting to go somewhere for ultimate storage, ultimate disposal. That's different than the spent fuel that comes out of commercial reactors. They're two totally different items. Now, the spent fuel coming out of nuclear reactors today, uh, in excess of 90% of that material could be reused and put back into a reactor and continue to fuel that reactor. So it's, it's a little bit like you filling up your car, you know, putting 15 gallons of gas in your car and driving a gallon and a half out of it and then parking your car and going and buying a new car. Okay? We're putting that much fuel value off to the side and not using it because we've chosen not to reprocess fuel. So now I don't know if it's going to be, ever be economical to reprocess fuel. We've not done the research to actually get at the economics of it all, and the economics will, in the end, drive the whole decision. But what I do know from an engineering point of view is we're putting a whale of a lot of energy off to the side and not reusing it, and it could be extracted back out, reformulated into fuel rods, and put back into reactors and reused. So we're talking nuclear and uh, solar. That's, that's really ritual stuff. How do we actually get to where the common person can actually get involved and help this movement go? So you, you have two questions there. How do we, how do we get the, the, the needy involved in it? And, but the other is how do we translate it to maybe overcome the issue of a needy population, right? It's, it's going to get cheaper and cheaper. Knoxville or somebody here has just built a three, seven, Leave gold houses for poor um, people. And, and Bruce was the uh, PERS raider for those projects, the guy sitting next to you. So, um, you know, that's something that the city has been doing to um, create, you know, basically with the point of view that if you build an, an energy efficient house, then that reduces somebody's utility bills for the life of that house. You know, it's a really an important thing you can do for somebody. So um, uh, the people, uh, you know, the house that they had an opening ceremony for, a lady had lived in there for years and they needed to replace it. She had to move out for a while, but she got to move back in. So she was delighted. So let me give one example. I know you want to stop here. And then I'll give an anecdotal story here too. 
the governor a year ago made an investment in biofuels. I don't know if you've heard about that. We're building a, a refinery out in Van Orr uh, to convert switchgrass into uh, gasohol or into alcohol that will go into gasoline and it'll, you know, so it's part of that supply chain. It's a small 250,000 gallon a year demonstration plant to convert switchgrass into alcohol. Now, what he really did, I mean, that sounds like a high tech thing that he did. What he really did was he put money out into the farm community to begin growing a crop that those farmers were never growing before. They were perhaps used to growing tobacco or for, growing, or for not growing anything at all. And he put money out into that farm community and said, you know what, I want you to grow switchgrass and I'm going to buy that switchgrass for you. We're going to turn that into an energy crop. And a smaller portion of the money then goes into building this refinery to convert it into a usable product. So he's, in, in essence, putting money out into a community that is a needy community that will generate uh, funds going into that community, that, that ag community, and those people's lives are going to get bootstrapped forward. Okay? And their kids will be able to go to school because they're going to have a, a higher standard of living and a better walk in life, and they're going to be able to capitalize on that kind of uh, investment. So I, that's an excellent example of how we can, through investments in new energy technologies, we can see, uh, uh, we can address this question that you asked about the needy. Now, second anecdotal story. My brother-in-law is a medical doctor and he periodically goes on medical missions. He went to a medical mission in Nepal. And what he discovered in these small backwoods communities in Nepal were little tiny solar collectors that ran a single light bulb and a little small television set so that the people could actually, so they could actually have a little light, they could, they could get some evening entertainment and, and you know, they're, they're, they, could see, they could see what was going on around the world and their, their birth rate dropped in those communities. <laughs> I mean, now that helps, okay? That's a needy environment, a needy community, a needy environment. We're getting more information to them and we have fewer mouths that we have to feed there, therefore the mouths that we are feeding are gonna get a better life, so. Okay. While we scrap up, this has been a great discussion. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you that there, I'm, I know you all know this, but there are all kinds of, of uh, opportunities to read more about this whole issue of energy. Here's one by uh, Gwyneth Cravens on the truth about nuclear power, and I think it's really interesting to see, you know, who really got injured in Chernobyl and who really got injured in you know, in uh, Three Mile Island and that. Here's another one, the, uh, the End of Oil by Paul Roberts, another good uh, treatise on what's going on with oil. You mentioned another one on, on coal earlier here today. So uh, there's an awful lot to read on this, and I would encourage everyone to go out and get smarter. <laughs>